time, let's draw our attention uh, directly to verses 14 through 16 this morning. Having spent each week of our study in Jude reading the letter in its entirety up to that point. Let's read and dive in. Verse 14, it was about these. Who is these? Verse 4, those who have crept in perverting the gospel. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These who, verse 4, these who have crept in, these about whom it has been prophesied, these, the last characteristics of these enemy generals, they are grumblers. They are malcontents following their own sinful desires. They're loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Oh, this is the word of the Lord. Father, we uh, beg of you this morning that you would give us the grace to hear that which we need to hear, uh, the patience to endure um, the hard and challenging passages which we will reflect upon, and the wisdom and the insight to know how we are to respond to these warnings about false teachers and the coming judgment. Uh, May you anoint the time with your blessing. Um, if we have come, if we have come today of our own strength and in our own intelligence, and instead of coming um, to the house of the Lord, as it were, to bring an offering of praise and devotion to the Lord, if we have come in error, if we have come foolishly, Lord, correct us, help us along the way. In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen. You may be seated. When I was a child, I was sitting in a Baptist church that looked a lot like this one, um, and I was, as you would be, distracted. Many of you have heard this story. I offer it just by way of introduction. Uh, Distracted, not listening to what the preacher is saying but thinking about literally anything else because you're bored to tears in church as a child. We know that. It's okay. Uh, And suddenly I heard my name from the pulpit. Stephen, what did I just say? And it was like, dude, I I have no idea. I don't know why you're asking me. I don't know why you would expect that I would know. All right? You saw me picking my nose, looking out the window like, what? And somehow, out of thin air, I pulled Proverbs 17:22. A merry heart does good like a medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. Astonished, the pastor called me up front, gave me a dollar, and sent me back to my seat. <laughs> I, I would argue that since that day, um, there has been a particular fondness for that verse for me. Uh, it almost sort of like identifies my life. And if you know me well, you know that I like to cut up and joke around and have a good time. And much of that is restrained greatly when I stand in this space. I offer that to let you know that there will be none of that this morning. 
will listen to this sermon not knowing that from the time of my earliest childhood memories, a merry heart does good like a medicine is a verse that identifies my life. You would not know it from this sermon alone. No, it's heavy. Um, these verses, perhaps more than others in Jude, bring to mind the biblical depictions of God's judgment. Namely, uh, the nature and the certainty of hell. In our study of Jude, we've been compelled to consider a few things. We've taken some journeys through medieval and first and second century church history. We have looked carefully at the claims and the words of modern-day false teachers. We've looked carefully at their words because, verse 15, their words earn them the consequence, right? He comes to execute judgment in part, because of that last word in verse 15, because of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And so we've looked carefully at the words of these modern-day false teachers. And now today we find ourselves in a position where it is necessary to clearly articulate a doctrine of hell and judgment. Congratulations. When it comes to these topics, several points of view dominate the evangelical landscape and that of the average Western unbeliever. The most common beliefs regarding hell and judgment, excluding the billions with a B, who are caught up in the deception of reincarnation, will consider the Western view that predominates our culture. The most common beliefs are annihilationism. This is the belief that some what are called deconstructed Christians and unbelievers have, uh, that when you cease to breathe physically, you simply cease to exist. People do not want to believe in a God who would punish unbelievers for eternity. So, quote, maybe there's an eternal reward, but there is certainly not an eternal consequence, end quote. It's the idea. Eternal torment, the notion of such a thing, grinds against the Western sentimentalism that we have in our culture placed on a fair God. That's not fair. You might sin for 50 years, but you're going you're gonna to be tormented for eternity? That's not fair. And so I, re- I refuse to believe that. Therefore, what would be more fair is to simply cease to, to exist. As the Irishman told me boldly once, this life is not a dress rehearsal, he says to me as I talk to him about the gospel. This life is not a dress rehearsal. When you stop breathing, you simply cease to exist. So an easy, albeit anti-intellectual outlet for some is to embrace annihilationism. On the other end of the spectrum is eternal conscious torment. These are, if you will, the two extremes of the Western view of hell and judgment. It doesn't exist. You simply cease to exist. The alternate, alternative, completely opposite end of the spectrum is eternal, conscious torment. This view agrees that just as the eternal reward for the true Christian is peace with God, that the inverse is also true 
those who die in their sin suffer eternal consequence from God. This would be considered a classic Orthodox Christian understanding of hell as depicted in the teaching of Jesus, the apostles, and the Old Testament. Then there is universalism. Universalists such as Rob Bell, who I've spoken about before, they view the judgment of hell as reserved for Satan and his minions if it exists at all. Furthermore, in this view, God's love will be universally applied to every human in the afterlife, regardless of morals, beliefs, or actions. In this view, a person may live their whole lives wanting nothing to do with God, wishing not to spend eternity with him, refuse his, grif- his gift of grace, rebel against his lordship, and God will drag him or her kicking and screaming into eternal peace with him against their will. This is universalism. Then there is the, the middle ground. Beyond a universalist and beyond the extremes of annihilationism and eternal conscious torment, there are those like N.T. Wright who seek to find a middle ground between the two. He does this by acknowledging hell as a real place, judgment as a real aspect of the gospel, but when pressed on a doctrine of hell, Wright talks in circles around the what he calls evangelical obsession with hell. And this is especially frustrating because Wright has many good things to say, but in this discussion, he almost compliments Rob Bell in, quote, shaking things up in his overtly heretical writings. And so it's weird. Wright maintains a reputation as a reliable and creative theologian among the what you might call the conservative or mainline evangelical church. But he is, in many people's view, including mine, teetering perilously close to endorsing false teaching, making it hard, maybe even impossible for pastors like me to endorse him. Um, it was probably five years ago, Alistair Begg was asked about N.T. Wright, and he just said, well, you know, on some things, he's good, and on other things, maybe not so much. It was a very gracious response. I don't have the platform that he has with the many thousands who hear his words, so I can be a bit more blunt. There are better options. Why choose an okay one? That's the point, right? There are better options. Why choose an okay one? Go to R.C. Sproul, go to Matthew Henry, uh, you know, go to guys who are long dead and gone, um, and uh, and avoid those who are who are teetering. That said, Wright represents an ever-growing subset of evangelicals, or you might say, intellectuals, who seek to blunt the sharp edges of the preaching and teaching on hell. That's the key. This is the goal. In a, in a pseudo-intellectual endeavor, we want to, to file off those sharp edges of hell, fire, and brimstone, as it were. However, 
as we'll see today, Jesus taught by design, drawing on the most graphic and disturbing images available to portray the nature of God's judgment on the ungodly. He didn't attempt to file off the sharp edges. He sought not to tame or diminish the language of hell. He leaned into it, ultimately speaking more about hell and judgment than about heaven. It must therefore be our goal to agree with Jesus on the nature of God's judgment reserved for the ungodly. Jesus is the one, John 1, 3, through whom everything was created, right? And Jesus, John 5, 28, is the one through whom everything will be judged. Helps us then to reflect on question number 28 of the New City Catechism, which we email to you and we make accessible to you, moms and dads, and all of you church members. What happens after death to those not united to Christ by faith? What happens? The answer is at the end of, excuse me, at the day of judgment, they will receive the fearful but just sentence of condemnation pronounced against them. They will be cast out from the favorable presence of God into hell to be justly and grievously punished forever. To get there, let us first consider, if you're taking notes, number one, the characteristics of judgment. The characteristics of judgment. Now, I'll be making a lot of references. I'll need to move so quickly you won't be able to write them all down. I encourage you to join an ever-growing list of people who are asking for a digital copy of my notes on a weekly basis. All of these references are in there, including links to articles and quotes and things like that. So take notes, but track with me and allow me to move at a pace that allows us to not punish the nursery workers for a third week in a row, okay? The characteristics of judgment. There are seven. Number one, it is fiery, fiery. Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Hell, it is the word Jesus used most often when speaking of the afterlife for those who die in their sin. It is the word Gehenna. The Greek term Gehenna is derived from the Hebrew phrase meaning the Valley of Hinnom, which is a real physical place. It is a ravine running along the south side of Jerusalem, a place historically where the rubbish, quote, the rubbish from the city was constantly being burned. That is the fire and the sewage. The, the trash and the sewage from the city was in a perpetual fire. This is the metaphor he used to communicate the truth about which no one else can know. Matthew seven nineteen: Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire 
Matthew 13, 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. This in a portion of scripture where the harvester separates the wheat from the weeds. The weeds are burned with fire. The second characteristic is darkness. Darkness, Matthew twenty two thirteen, concerning the one who arrives at the wedding feast without the proper garment. Quote, the, saint, the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. So it will be fiery, yet it will be dark. Thirdly, it will be torturous. Again, Jesus in Matthew 13, 41 to 43, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. Real quick, pause. R.C. Sproul says, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Sproul goes, I don't know, maybe, but it's the sinner who's cast into hell. So let's worry about that, right? Lawbreakers. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Conversely, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Fiery darkness torturous. Fourthly, it will be eternal. Mark 9, 43 speaks, Jesus speaks of the unquenchable fire. Again in verse 48, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The idea is that it is a, it is a fire that does not consume. It merely burns and burns forever. Unquenchable. I mean, of course, that should draw to mind the appearance of God to Moses. The bush was burning, but it was not consumed. Matthew twenty-five forty-one. Jesus says, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Later in verse 46, These will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. It will be eternal. Refuting the, no, the notion of temporary purgatory to then acquire your heavenly reward, Jesus says, no, the fire and the punishment is eternal. Refuting the notion of annihilationism, Jesus said of Judas Iscariot, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So what Jesus said is, non-existence would be better than what he will suffer. Annihilation would be the same as had he not been born. But Jesus says his consequence is worse than to simply cease to exist. So we can confidently dismiss any claims that Jesus said 
as much or taught the annihilation of the soul, including the reference we read earlier to the destruction of the soul. We have to take it in context, and we can't ignore the repeated descriptions of eternal fire, eternal torment, and annihilation as a preferred option to the consequence awaiting the ungodly. It will be unending, unquenchable, eternal. Fifthly, it will be bodily. It will be bodily. John 5, 28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And isn't that our hope, friends? Those who have done good. How can it be that we can be considered having done good? I've done bad. What about that? It's the grace of Jesus. His mercy is more. So those who have done good are covered by the blood, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. They'll be raised and given glorified bodies, as John MacArthur puts it, bodies suited for eternal torment. That's a terrible thought. It'll be bodily. Sixth, it will be final, which is to say it cannot be undone. Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. This is what Zephaniah calls the day of the Lord. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And the passage continues essentially describing that the sheep will enjoy the heavenly reward while the goats, as we read earlier, are cast into the eternal fire of torment. It is final. It is irrevocable. Jesus told the story of the rich man and the poor man Lazarus. Many of you know it. The poor man died. Luke 16, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. This is sometimes called Abraham's bosom or paradise as Jesus called it to the thief on the cross who confessed his belief and hope in Jesus. Abraham's bosom, paraside, a paraside, paradise, Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades being in torment. This is the idea of the earth beneath. This is the idea portrayed in Korah's rebellion. The earth swallowed them whole. In Hades, Jesus said, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, so this man was a Jew. The ungodly who was burning was a Jew in the story Jesus told, for what it's worth. We don't have time for that derivation, but... Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child... Remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things. Lazarus, in like manner, bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all of this, listen, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. 
it is final. The chasm is fixed. The judgment handed down. Finally, we should say it would be an aberration if we didn't, uh, he is, the, the characteristics of God's judgment are uh, just. Just. Fiery, darkness, what was the word we used to talk about torment? Torturous, eternal, bodily, final, and just. And here we have John the Revelator at the end, you know, portraying what will be on that great day of the Lord when Jesus comes again. And he renders his verdict. He, if you will, hammers the gavel and the hosts of heaven declare again and again this phrase, his judgments are true and just. Literally the most devastating, fear-inducing, awful metaphors and illustrations imaginable are what Jesus used to define the characteristics of his judgment. Well, let us consider then what Jude tells us about number two, the reservation of judgment. We have a firm, if you will, comprehensive, though not exhaustive picture of the judgment of God. Let's consider what Jude tells us about the reservation of the judgment of God. It is firstly reserved for the ungodly. Again, I draw your attention to Jude 14, the second half. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. That means plural of ten thousand. It's not a typo or a grammar error. To execute, verse 15, judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So the first reservation that we might say for judgment is that it is first reserved for the ungodly. The righteous and the unrighteous will both be judged. Hebrews 9.27 tells us that it is appointed once for man to die, and then comes the judgment. The righteous and the unrighteous. But the godly, the redeemed, the repentant, will be judged and found innocent. Washed, as it were, Hebrews 9.22, by the blood of the Lamb. Judged examined the, the all-penetrating, piercing gaze of God on the throne examines you the way that God said to Job, stand up like a man, let me examine you. And thanks be to God, instead of my sin and my brokenness and my selfishness and my greed and my anger and my outbursts and my lack of self-control and my lust and my grossness, instead of that, that piercing gaze does not penetrate the blood of Jesus applied to the account, you see. We will stand before the judgment, but we will be found innocent. Thanks be to God. 
the judgment of hellfire is reserved for the ungodly. Remembering that the term ungodly means one who will not be governed. The ungodly is one who refuses to acknowledge God's rule and reign. He might exist, but he ain't my God. This is the whole, we saw this phrase, not my president, when the presidential candidate that many Americans was not elected, they said, he might be your president, but he's not my president. Well, it's like, well, you live in America, so he kind of is, like it or not, you know? No matter what side of the aisle you're on or what, who you voted for, that guy is the president. Can't escape it. That's the idea of the ungodly. Not my president, not my God. The ungodly is one who will not be governed, will not bow to the authority of Jesus. It is, if you will, the inverse of the one described in Romans 10.9, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Not that Jesus exists, not even that he was the son of God, not even believe and confess that he rose on the third day. No, confess he is Lord. He's in charge. He is king, not only of the world, but of my life. And so if he says jump, I say how high, right? And so the ungodly is the inverse of that. Judgment is reserved for the ungodly. However, secondly, we might say judgment the severest judgment is reserved for the apostate. The apostate. Hebrews 10, 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. What's that? That's the average individual who simply does not submit to the authority of the law of God, which pronounces us guilty which requires repentance, necessitates a covering, right? Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The next verse, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the son of god and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified this is one who seems to know and believe but then profane reject and has outraged the spirit of grace how much worse for we know him who said vengeance is mine i will repay and again the lord will judge his people verse 31 it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living god and this is important because this is the context of jude He's talking to the church about apostates. That is, those who claim to believe, who even claim to be redeemed, and yet by their life, actions, and so on, trample underfoot that which they claim to have. That's the context of Jude. This is his concern. 
Jude is not concerned about the man or the woman who is far off from the church believing nonsensical deceptions. Those people matter. They are caught in deception. That's just not the context of Jude's letter. Jude's saying, my greatest concern is that you've got pastors in the pulpits teaching deception cloaked as the truth. That's a problem. Okay? Those are what we call apostate. They trample the gospel. They know it. They believe it. Even the demons believe and they tremble. They are not redeemed. They reject Jesus' lordship and then they work in concert with Satan to propagate error and deceive the impressionable. How much worse is the punishment for them? The question, of course, is are there degrees of reward in heaven and are there degrees of torment in hell? And there are various passages of scripture that allude to, yeah, yeah. yeah. You might stumble backwards into redeemed glory, having wasted much of your life, but your belief was genuine enough, right? That you'll scrape by, if you will, by the skin of your teeth to the point that people will go, you? And you'll go, yeah, whew, just made it. And then they go to you, where are you going? And you're like, well, I'm going up to the VIP lounge. Where are you going? Well, I'm not allowed. I don't have the right pass. Now, that's a very crass description, but there are various texts of Scripture we do not have time to explore that imply, if you will, levels. And the same inversely, how much more punishment is reserved for the false teacher who uses the name that is above all names, to deceive and enrich himself. How dare you? You see, it feels like it should be worse. The text of Scripture seems to imply it will be. Second Peter 2, 9 through 10, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Thanks be to God, right? Amen, hallelujah. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from their trials. Come on. Thank you, okay? And he also knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Do you see the, the compare and contrast that he's setting up? Just as much as your trials are meant for your good, Romans 8.28, they are meant to refine you and perfect you, James chapter 1, in the same manner, to the same degree, God also knows how to keep under judgment those who are reserved for the punishment until the great day. And you'd think, well, if that's enough, that's a good enough contrast, right? God can do both of these extremes. But then Peter says, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Well, what do you mean especially? I mean, Peter the apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, implies a greater, more severe consequence for those who give over, give themselves over to the lust of defiling passion, probably because of the way that the lust of defiling passion incorporates others, often innocents, often minors, into their 
depravity and those who despise authority. A special reservation is made. It is an interesting characteristic, often easily observable in the false teacher. They are confident in their error, rebuffing any and all correction. They live above the accountability of anyone else in their own minds. They will answer to no one on earth. You are not worthy of them having to explain themselves to you. I heard this recently. A piece of property was sold, and many people that were part of the broader Christian community that helped pay for and enhance that property, they were saying, well, what did we do with the money? It's none of your business. It's not? Well, it sort of seems like if you don't have anything to hide, you would be transparent with how the money is spent and where the money is going. And I mean, thousands of us contributed to the enhancement and usefulness of this property. And now you sold it, put the money in the bank. Where is it? None of my business. What? See, that's why, friends, everything is transparent here at Hillcrest. Every church member has access to every dollar that is spent, how it's allocated. The budget process is arduous. It's oftentimes grueling for me and for the elders. We have meetings and we have conversations and we have to justify things. And we have to, why? Because we're a family and we don't have secrets in a family. You all know exactly how much money goes into my bank account every month. I'm the pastor. Well, no one else has to divulge their salary. Why should the pastor have to divulge his salary? Because if you don't have anything to hide, you have no reason to not be transparent. See? The false teacher says, I don't have to explain myself to you. The false teacher says, I have a group of people who they over here decide my salary. That's not for the peons to know, the peons who give to this organization and fuel the life, right? It's not for them to know. You see, they will answer to no one. Every critic is just a hater, jealous of their success. This is the one who despises authority. I answer to no one. You will answer to someone. Maybe not in this life. Even the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, why is it the wicked prosper? God's almost answering saying, a day is but a thousand years, right? This life is but a vapor. They may get away with it for 50 years, but their consequence is the eternal torment of fiery hell. Thirdly, judgment is reserved from long ago. Not point number three, the third aspect of the reservation of judgment. It is reserved for the ungodly. The severest form of it is reserved for the apostate. It is reserved from long ago. That's where Jude gets off on this tangent about Enoch. Not that he has a tangent. Don't hear me say that as if it's not perfectly inspired. I simply mean he makes a reference to something that we aren't going to take the time to explore. Because for me, it would be a tangent. And it might be my last Sunday in the pulpit because they'll string me up downstairs and hang me from my toes. Verse 14, it was also about these. Remember? These who despise authority. These who trample the grace of Jesus. These who pervert the gospel. It was also about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied. 
Enoch is quoted here not to endorse everything attributed to him. Um, the books of First and Second Enoch do not need to be viewed as uh, a scriptural. The, the Jews didn't. They didn't view them as inspired in the same way that the Torah was inspired. Uh, it should not be taken with any particular confidence that, that everything that people said Enoch wrote or said that he actually said. Um, most of the manuscripts that are attributed to Enoch cannot be reliably dated beyond 2nd century BC, whereas we have many other older documents um, that authenticate the Torah and the scroll of Isaiah and so on. Furthermore, much of what's called the book of Enoch today wasn't added until the 2nd century AD. So this would have been well after Jude was dead and gone. However, if Jude says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Enoch prophesied about these men, he definitely did. That doesn't mean that you take wholesale everything else that's attributed to Enoch. The same way um, Paul quoted a Cretan poet in his letter to Titus, saying Cretans are, you know, lazy, good-nothings. Well, that doesn't mean that everything that that poet says is, in, is the inspired scripture. Paul's just using a reference that the people would know, same in like manner. Jude uses a reference, people would know the story and the writings attributed to Enoch. So what's the point? I could do a whole sermon on this, and it's not worth our time, I promise. It's interesting, but it's not worth our time. To emphasize that from long ago, apostates have been prophesied about, Jude quotes Enoch. The idea is this. The message has been consistent every time. These people, these apostates, the ungodly will be judged. This consistency, Jude argues, goes all the way back to before the flood. The seventh from Adam, Enoch. This is like saying something is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Well, how long has sliced bread been around? For a while, right? So this thing must be pretty great because history says sliced bread was a big deal. That's the whole thing. The hyperbole draws on. It's, it's, it conveys significance based on history. Jesus said it. The apostles said it. The prophets promised it. Even Enoch said it before the flood. Do you see the point? That's the idea. The message has been reinforced. It hasn't been changed. It has been the same since as long as men have been prophesying in the name and on behalf of God on the earth, apostates reserve for themselves the judgment of God. See, that's the reason for the reference. Judgment is coming. And a special, even more fearful judgment is coming for those who have tasted the goodness of God, rejected it, and are at work twisting his message in order to further Satan's deception of mankind, enriching themselves in the process. How does God view them? We just read it. How should we view them? Well, we should love what God loves and hate what God hates. Psalm 97, 10, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. And so we cannot be tolerant, accommodating, or welcoming of false teachers. 
John's second letter to the church warns us not to welcome them into our homes. Don't greet them. Don't wish them well. To do so, John says, is to take part in their wickedness. Furthermore, in John's third letter to the church, he names one who is especially troublesome, Diotrephes. He, quote, puts himself first, unquote, and rejects the authority of the apostles. And get this, he has a high enough status in the church that he is excommunicating people from it. This is no outsider. He's a pastor, a well-known pastor with a lot of clout. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the apostle Jesus loved, John, calls Diotrephes out by name, calls him a front-runner, a worker of evil, and one unworthy of imitation. John says, I'll deal with him when I get there personally. And I hope, I hope that John sent that letter and that letter was read to the community and Diotrephes wet himself where he sat. I hope so. I don't know, but I hope so. Verse 16, these are grumblers and malcontents, loudmouth boasters showing favoritism. Friends, to be the Christian calling out the false teacher, you will be accused of being the quarrelsome. Why are you so obsessed with blank? Why don't you just live and let live? If you're right, why are you worried about it? To be the one to say Diotrephes is an error, and I'll deal with him when I get there. You align yourself with those who will be called the quarrelsome. But friends, we are not the quarrelsome who identify and reject false teachers. The quarrelers, the grumblers, the malcontents are those spreading their lies in and among the people of God. We who call them out on it, warning others not to listen to them, are in lockstep with Jude, with Jesus who called the Pharisees who were harming the people a brood of vipers and whitewashed tombs. We are in concert with John, calling this man out by name, and with the Holy Spirit who inspired such things. We are being kind enough to do what they did. The only warning comes from Galatians 6. Let us be sure and do so without sinning ourselves in the error of pride and anger. But like Galatians, like Paul said to the Galatians, but keep watch over yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Do not think yourself, church, above the temptation of the rejection of the gospel of Jesus. When things are hard, when families are being divided. Keep watch. Fourthly, the reservation of Jesus, the reservation of judgment, it is reserved by Jesus. It's reserved for the ungodly. Special reservation is made of the judgment for the apostate. It has been reserved from long ago. I think the, the, the Brits say for donkey's years. Has anybody ever heard that? For donkey's years? No? I guess it means a long time. I should have looked it up before I mentioned it from the pulpit. Those British people talk weird. It's been reserved for donkey's years from long ago. 
And finally, the judgment is reserved by Jesus, which is to say Jesus made the reservation. He made an appointment, and the day is fixed. I'm coming back, and when he comes back, it is to judge the earth. He made the appointment. He made the reservation. The day is on the calendar. Revelation 19, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Logos, the word of God, the same word which became flesh and dwelt among us in John chapter 1. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Jesus is not your boyfriend. He's not your cuddly teddy bear. He is a warrior. And I like the way John Level says this. He says, Jesus in his first advent put his armor and sword aside to come to earth on a hostage rescue mission. <laughs> he did that the first time. But when he returns, he returns armed. He comes not as the suffering servant, but as the righteous judge with a sword in his mouth to strike down the nations. And so we must consider then in closing the gift of judgment. If you're taking notes, there's the characteristics of judgment, fiery and torturous and so on. There's the reservation of judgment, how it has been appointed, how it will be executed by Jesus himself. We must consider that judgment is a gift. A church member gave me an article this week. It was meant to be a, a word of encouragement. She had no idea how applicable a particular phrase in it would be. Allow me to read for you the highlighted portion Hard times are coming upon the world. There is simply no avoiding it. When that happens, we all need to recall Jesus' warnings, which return to us as a merciful gift. That may sound strange, but in any other area of life, we're thankful to be warned about things. Bad weather, traffic jams, economic recessions. The strange thing is that a lot of pastors won't warn Christians of difficult spiritual realities. I believe they're not being faithful to their holy calling. This is meant to be a, a word of encouragement to me. Say thank you. Thank you for not neglecting your holy calling. What she couldn't have known is that that phrase early in that quote was so apropos for today. Jesus' warnings returned to us as a merciful gift. We need to recognize the plethora of talk about hell and judgment is a gift. MacArthur says the heart cannot be properly evangelized without a component of fear. Which makes sense, right? Without the knowledge of our depravity that makes us enemies of God, from what will we repent and why? We would be without humility that this knowledge brings without repentance and therefore without grace. And without grace, all are doomed. The promise of judgment is intended as a warning to produce fear of divine 
wrath. Now, if the judgment passages are designed as a warning, listen, what is the intended outcome? What is the intended outcome? Well, what are the goals of a sign like fog for the next eight miles, rock falls, deer crossing, sharp curve, reduce speed? What are the goals of these warnings, church? Yeah, you're mumbling it. You get the idea. It's to alter your course. Slow down, pay attention, change your plans, look up, or in a word, repent. See? The judgment passages of God's inspired word, they aren't mean. They aren't nice. But they are what, church? Kind. That's right. It should come then as no surprise to us when false teachers choose not to preach about judgment. It should come as no surprise to us, church, when popular culture under the influence of Satan condemns the Christian message of judgment. Listen, the devil doesn't want people warned. You see? The passages of judgment are a gift. Therefore, Christian, I implore you, do not back down from the hard truths, the hard messages. Do not compromise on the judgmental passages. Do not seek to blunt the edges in fear of not being accepted or sounding audacious or ridiculous. Do not compromise on the reality of eternal conscious torment, the existence and torturous nature of hell, the severity of Jesus, the avenger of God's law on a white horse with a sword in his mouth. Don't back down, friend. Number one, it's not your message to change. Number two, the severity is a gift to the hearer. in order that they might cry out in concert with the, the people in the gospel, what must I do to be saved? <laughs> you see, friends, the true gospel brings us to this point that we are crying out, what must I do to be saved? Because the threat is real and severe and final. Don't blunt the edges. Don't compromise. These are the very passages by which God has designed for mankind to be convicted of their sinful violation of his law so that we might respond in desperation to believe, to repent, and be saved. So thanks be to God for his word. All of it.